Well, this past week, I uh, wrote an article on my blog talking uh, about the challenges of getting beyond ourselves. And I used the example of a fish in water. Uh, When a fish swims around in water, it's pretty likely that a fish isn't giving much thought to water. It's just the world they live in. It is their reality. And, And I made the comparison that our reality is a world that is very me-driven, very uh, driven toward what's in it for me. In fact, when uh, folks that study marketing uh, from a global perspective, they, they use a couple of different terms and strategies for different kinds of, of uh, cultures. The American culture is a culture that's driven uh, or they, they classify it as it being an individualistic culture. And so if you're going to advertise to an individualistic culture, you're going to answer questions like, hey, what's in this for you? This is going to make you feel better by fill in the blank. And so the benefit to you is the emphasis in marketing strategies. And you can start taking commercials apart, and it's obvious that is what drives uh, marketing today. There's just no doubt about it from, from our uh, our uh, perspective or standpoint. Now, uh, marketing strategists globally also talk about societies or cultures that are called collectivist cultures. China is an example. And in those kinds of cultures, they're not asking questions like, hey, do this because it'll make you this or because it'll make you feel that. They're asking questions like, hey, buy this because it's good for everybody. Be, be a part of this because it's good for the community. And you see how radically different those two perspectives are. Now, we recognize even our own sinful nature inclines us to want to ask, hey, what's in this for me? What's the benefit for me? But as we read the Word and as we look at the example of Jesus, we know that's not the Christian life. It may be the air that we breathe. It may be what our culture's about. But it's not at all what believers can be about. That is, if we're being shaped and changed by the Word of God. And this morning, we're going to meet a man named Nehemiah. And we're going to see a fellow who is not driven by, hey, what's in it for me? But he's driven by a great desire to give of himself for the good of others. And I think his example is challenging And I think it speaks especially to a day such as our own. We need the clear word from God that we'll see today in Nehemiah chapter 1. Now before we read Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to give you a quick overview of where we're at in the biblical storyline. So again, I'm going to try to quickly start at the very beginning. God created everything, Genesis 1-1 created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were perfect. There was no sin in the world. Everything was right and good. Adam and Eve decided to reject God's rule. They rebelled against him, and they sinned. And when sin came into the world, every human heart from that moment on has been broken by sin. And the creation, all of creation, is broken, and and it's messed up. It's not the way God designed it. The effects of the fall, the effects of sin. Well, eventually, a population increased, and we learn in Genesis that the people were very evil. And so God brought a catastrophic judgment. He brought a flood to judge the sin of the people. And he saved Noah and his family in the ark. And then eventually, Noah and his family survived, and the, the population began to grow again. And suddenly, the people, oh, they're a lot like us. We don't want to admit it, but they are. Now they're at it again. They want to make a name for themselves. They're going to build this tower up to the heavens, the Tower of Babel. And so God brings judgment down and he gives them different languages and scatters them over the face of the earth. 
And then as we pick up in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram. Later, he'll give him the name Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. A prophecy, prophecy, of course, of, of the coming of Jesus that we talked about earlier in the children's sermon. And so Abraham would have Isaac, Isaac would have Jacob, Jacob would have Joseph, 12 sons in total. Because of famine, they would end up in the nation of Egypt. And they would thrive there for a while, but they would be enslaved for 400 years. God's people, Israel, would live under Egyptian slavery. And they were crying out to God in desperation. And God raised up a deliverer, Moses. Now Moses was a pretty bad fellow. Actually, he represented an awesome God. That's reality. And through Moses, God brought great miracles and he delivered God's people. He delivered God's people from Egypt. Well, they went into the wilderness and guess what? (laughs) They were at it again. They look a lot like us. They began to to gripe and complain and rebel against God. And so God said, you know what? You're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. So after 40 years, God raised up uh, Joshua. And Joshua led the people into the conquest of Canaan, the land that God had promised them. And so the people went into Canaan and began to to drive out the Canaanites and to to settle in that land. And eventually, uh, leaders began to lead the people called judges. And and, uh, the people, it it was really a terrible time in the nation's history because they would do right and then they would go into terrible sin and then they would cry out to God and God would send another leader to, to help them go in the right direction. And they, it was just a terrible process over and over again. So eventually the people said, we want a king. We want a king. And so God said, you want a king? You're rejecting me as your king. You can have King Saul. And King Saul, was a, he was a man's man. He was uh, a lot taller than, than most of the men around. He was a, a fellow that the ladies would have, would have said was handsome and good looking. But his heart drifted away from God. And after King Saul, King David would, would come onto the scene. King David would have Solomon, and Solomon would, would rule. But, but we know Solomon had a half heart. He, he loved God, but then he had this whole other world going on over here. And Solomon, uh, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel would be divided into a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Think union and confederacy. It's something like that. And so... Uh, these two, uh, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, uh, at war with each other often. Eventually, the northern kingdom experienced the judgment of God because they were so wicked. And in 722 B.C., God raised up the nation of Assyria to wipe out the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom would go on for a while avoiding God's judgment because of periods of repentance and change. But in 586, God would use the nation of Babylon to, to bring judgment onto the southern kingdom or or Judah. And so in 586 or 587, the people in Judah were wiped out. The city was destroyed. The walls were torn up. The temple was was desecrated and destroyed. And those who were leaders in the land or had any kind of influence at all were taken captive into Babylon. And after a period of time in Babylon, another world power uh, came the Persians, and they conquered Babylon, and the Persian king, the Persian kings began to, to have a little different attitude toward the, the peoples that, uh, of whose land they, they ruled and controlled. And by God's good hand of providence, Cyrus was moved to allow 
uh, Israelites who were in captivity to begin to make their way back to Judah. Now there was, uh, again, God was at work, but we have to admit that, that one of the great enemies of the Persian Empire was the Egyptians. And so in many ways, to have the loyalty of the Israelites, they're bordering the, uh, Egypt, was, was a very helpful thing for, for the Persian kingdom. So uh, Persia allowed uh, the captives to begin to return, and there were three waves of captives returning to Judah in 605 B.C. and 597 B.C. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, in 605 and 597, captives were taken uh, into Babylon in addition to 586. And then they would return in 538 B.C. and, uh, and 445 B.C., as we'll read about uh, today. So Zerubbabel was the first to lead a group back from captivity back to the land of Judah. And Zerubbabel led in the building of a temple. And a temple was reestablished in Jerusalem around 515 B.C. And then Ezra would lead a return in 458 B.C. And then in Nehemiah in 445 B.C. We'll read about Nehemiah's return to Judah today. Let's look at Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah... Son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. In this passage, we see that Nehemiah was devastated by the plight of his people. He was devastated by the plight of his people. There in verse 1, uh, we, we see that, that Nehemiah gets a report from folks who were from, from Judah. Now, Nehemiah was an Israelite who had been a part of the uh, uh, exile community or the community that was in exile there in, in Babylon, but he had, had risen in the ranks of the Persian government, had a very influential position. We'll talk about that more next week. In the month of Kislev, this is mid-November, mid-December, uh, word comes in the 20th year, and likely this is meaning the 20th year of King Artaxerxes I, which would have been around 445 B.C., uh, Nehemiah says, I was in Susa. This is the winter residence of Persian kings. This is where they would spend the winter. Sort of a resort, if you will. And a group came from Judah to see Nehemiah. Now, we don't know for sure if Hanani was a countryman or if he was literally Nehemiah's brother. We don't, we don't know that. The passage really doesn't, doesn't make that clear. But we really don't know the reason they came to see Nehemiah. That, that isn't given in the text either. But what we do see, and this is very important, is that when this group comes from Judah, what's on Nehemiah's heart? You know what he's asking? He's asking, hey, how are the people there? How are my fellow people? What's going on in Jerusalem? How's the city? How are the people doing? Notice that he asked. It indicates that he cared, that it mattered to him. That what was happening to his people mattered to him. That what was happening in the land of Judah mattered to Nehemiah. Now remember, he's up here in a lofty position within the Persian Empire. He doesn't have to care what's going on down there. 
He doesn't have to care. It doesn't have to matter to him. It does matter to him. There's something there for us. We'll come back to it. But he says, how are those who who have escaped the exile? That is, how are those who have returned from Babylon and, and went back to Judah? How are all of those people doing? We know that in 586, when the Babylonians uh, conquered Jerusalem and Judah, that there was incredible devastation to God's God's city, to to God's people. Walls around the city broken and devastated. You have to understand that walls were critical for the defense uh, of a a people. Imagine your own house going to bed at night without windows or doors. You wouldn't sleep very well, would you? Because you would feel defenseless. And that's exactly what you see here. The people are enduring a time where there's no defense. Where, where any kind of bandit or, or enemy can just walk up and attack. It was a horrible situation for God's people. In fact, those who brought Nehemiah reports said, there's great, great trouble and shame. So the people of God, they were shamed by their experience. Well, remember, they were originally carried into exile because they had rebelled against God. The fact that this had occurred, that Jerusalem was devastated, was all about the fact that they had sinned and they had rejected the rule of God. And so now they lived in the shambles and the shame of what that sin had brought into their lives, the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters. And so without a wall... There was no defense, and there was always danger. There was always the possibility of of harm and being being wounded and destroyed or killed, you name it. The temple being uh, re-decimated and destroyed that they had worked so hard to build some years before. At this point in time, it's about 140 years after Babylon had originally wiped out Judah. But even after that time, there was an attempt to rebuild the wall, and that was thwarted as well. And so we see ruins everywhere. Look at Nehemiah's response, verse 4. When Nehemiah heard what happened, the Scriptures tell us that he just sat down and wept. He just sat down and wept. Now, this is not the kind of word we use when... A tear comes to your eye in a movie that's kind of got an emotional scene. It's not that. No, Nehemiah is bawling before God. He's crying out to God. Why? On behalf of his people, because his people are hurting. Because God's people are suffering. And it matters to him. The scriptures tell us that he fasted and that he prayed. And we'll talk more about that next week. But he was calling out to God and he was broken and devastated by the condition of his people and by the condition of Jerusalem. So what does this mean for us? It means that we need to be broken hearted over the condition of hurting people. We need to be broken hearted over the condition of hurting people, particularly those within the family of God. Nehemiah cared that his fellow people were hurting and suffering. This is not unlike what Paul said in Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So Paul says, in a similar way, we ought to 
to be especially concerned for those who are a part of, of our family of faith, who are a part of our people, if you will. So let's think about putting what we see in Nehemiah's life into terms that, that we can live out. First, we need to care about what is going on in people's lives. We need to care about what's going on in people's lives. Most of us today are just so bombarded. Because of technology, anytime there's trouble or heartache or hardship, world over, we know about it in moments. And so in today's world, unlike any other time in history, we know everyone's heartache and brokenness And it's a constant flow. It's a constant flow. There was an explosion over here and 90 people were killed. There was a gunman here and all of these people were shot down. And we just hear it day after day, day after day. And it's possible that because of the way that we're bombarded by all of the pain and the brokenness of this world, it's entirely possible that our hearts just grow grow numb. We just become hardened in some ways. Just another story. Just another occurrence. In the second act of George Bernard Shaw's play, The Devil's Disciple, one of the characters, Reverend Anderson, told another character, Judith, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but it's to be indifferent toward them. It's to not care. It's simply to not care. It's not that you hate them. It's that you just don't care. And God's people cannot, cannot live there. We've got to be people who really care. Apathy is the order of the day. There's so much apathy when we see human pain and and hurt. Much of the reason that we aren't more involved is because we're too busy. We have our own lives after all. We have things we want to do and plans that that we've made and we've got this and we've got that. We've planned this trip and this vacation and we're going to put the kids in this activity and that activity and we're so busy in our own little world or our own little kingdom that we can't think about anyone else or at least we can't make too much sacrifice for anyone else. Maybe we'll think about them, pity them for a moment and move on. That wasn't what Nehemiah did. He was up in a place of comfort, in the, the winter resort area for the Persian kingdom. He had a good situation going on. And there was no reason that he had to care. And yet he did. Because he was a man of God. He cared. And you and I, we need to care. It needs to matter to us. We don't need to get so busy doing our own thing and building our own little worlds that we're forgetting about the people and needs that are before us and in the family of God this is especially true like Nehemiah was concerned for his countrymen his fellow Jews we ought to be concerned as believers for fellow believers as members of a faith family for fellow members of a faith family we're connected after all the scriptures make that clear that if we're a part of a uh, the body of Christ that if if I heard it affects other people or if you heard it affects me that the scriptures are clear in that 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 what happens in your life really impacts a whole lot of other people. And we have this pathetic, unbiblical view of the church often. And it's this view that, you know, I'll come to worship every now and then when I can kind of work it into my schedule and it's good and then I'll leave and I'm 
man, I'm good. But I want us to understand that isn't a biblical picture of, of, of being a part of a faith family. It's just not. When we're a part of a faith family, the way the Bible envisions it, we really know each other. We're really caring about each other's lives. It isn't, oh, I hear about that, ho-hum, I move on. No, we, we, we really want to be involved and we want to try to help and walk alongside. That, that's the vision of what God calls believers to, to do and to be. Kind of the response that you see in Nehemiah's life here. A brokenness, a devastation because the people of God are hurting. Biblical Christianity is about a powerful, life-changing gospel that redeems, that rescues And that places rescued people into families where there are other people who can support and encourage. And and likewise, that's biblical Christianity. Families where we care for each other. Families where what's going on in your life matters to me and to others and and vice versa. We're meant to to be a part of smaller groups where we can can get to know each other and pray for each other and and be, be connected. So to live this out, second, we must cry out to God on behalf of people who are hurting. We must cry out to God on behalf of people who are hurting. This means husbands. When your wife is hurting, lift her up in prayer. Pray for her. Call out to God on her behalf. You intercede for her and pray for her. And likewise, wives, when your husband's struggling, you call out to God on his behalf. And together, dads and moms are calling out to God on behalf of their kids. And praying their kids through the difficulties and the challenges that are faced. So in the midst of pain and hardship, we do what we can. And what we can do is we can call out to God for deliverance and for help. We pray for neighbors and co-workers in the struggles and the challenges that they face. We pray for fellow members of our church family. We are especially committed to to that, the scriptures tell us. We, We must be. We pray for our nation and the challenges facing our nation. How we desperately need God to move in our country. So we, so we pray, we cry out. We pray for people by name. We pray specifically. We don't pray quick little prayers, oh, help them, be with them. No, we cry out to God. There's something real going on in our hearts. Our hearts are moved. Our hearts are, are heavy by the pain we see in other people's lives. Third, we get involved. We get involved. You see, Nehemiah didn't hear about the hardships that his people faced. (gasps) Yawn and grab his phone. No, he sat down and began to weep. He began to cry out to God. He got involved. And we'll see how he got involved more in in the weeks ahead. So if God has placed a hurting person in your past, in your path, you ought to ask the question, is there some way that I can help? Is there some way that I, that I can be involved? You ought to be seeking ways to minister and to care for those people that God has placed in your lives. It's not that any one of us can fix the whole world. We can't. We, we recognize that. But every one of us can be faithful within the sphere that God has placed us. Some of us may have influence worldwide in some way, but all of us can be faithful within our families, within our neighborhoods, within our places of employment, within our own faith family. We can all seek to minister and to care for people and to cry out to God for people 
in their challenges and in their difficulties. And again, I want to emphasize the fact that this is especially true for members of a church. Members of a church have a clear responsibility for each other's well-being. It's one of the reasons God calls people to be a member of a church, to be a part of a church. Because we're not to be orphans, we're to be a part of a family, a family who cares. So what's the greatest way that we can show care and love for others who are hurting? Well, fourth, it's to share the good news. It's to share the good news. If we had the antidote to the most horrible, debilitating disease ever, we would be terrible people if we didn't share that. And folks, we do. There's no disease like human sin. There's no disease that destroys and breaks and harms like human sin. Sin tricks us and deceives us. It tells us, oh, just a little further, go a little more, have a little little more, take care of yourself. And when we follow sin's call, we wake up one day with a broken, messed up life. Most of us have experienced it in one way or another. We've felt the devastating effects of sin. But sin has a way of blinding us. We think, we think when we're in the middle of sin that it's so good that we're chasing something that's so awesome and it's, oh, it's freeing and it gives us life and it's fun. But one day, we pay the piper, don't we? You see, the day comes where we realize that sin wasn't fun at all that it just brought brokenness and heartache and pain. So sin tricks us, it blinds us, it leads us to harm ourselves, it leads us to harm those we love. It traps us, it depresses us, it leaves us, yes, with a terminal fate, it leaves us with a fate of being separated with God from all eternity in a horrible place called hell. That's what sin ultimately leads to. So if we really want to care for people who are hurting, the very best thing that we could do is tell them the good news, is to tell them that there's a God who loves them and cares for them and has made a way for them to be saved. You see, the gospel reminds us that God is completely, absolutely pure. He's blazingly pure. There's nothing in in God's character There's nothing about him that's not right and good and true. But the scriptures tell us that every one of us have a heart that's been dark, darkened and broken and ruined and messed up by sin. Now most today kind of popularly in our culture believe, well, as long as I'm pretty good and my goods, you know, my good behavior outweighs my bad behavior, I'm I'm good, I'll go to heaven. But if we believe that, we do not have an accurate understanding of the holiness of God because the Bible makes it clear that he will not tolerate sin, not any sin, not one sin. It's a horrible disease, sin that destroys and ravages people's lives and God will not tolerate one bit of sin, not one tiny bit. And so how does a holy God receive people like us who are broken in sin into fellowship with him. Well, you know what he did? He took his own son who came to this earth and who lived a perfect life and he took the punishment and the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. He poured his wrath out against sin on his own son. 
Think about that. He gave his very son that you and I might live and be forgiven. What an amazing act of sacrificial love. So how do we get into a relationship with a God who's completely pure? Who we throw ourselves at the mercy of God at the foot of the cross and we cry out to God and say, God, I know that I've gone my own way. I know that I've sinned and I've lived life the way I wanted to live. But today I'm saying to you, I believe Jesus came and died, was buried and rose again and I want to follow him. Please forgive me. And when we call out to God like that and we mean it, all of a sudden all the sin that has so defined our lives is wiped away by the blood of Christ. What a beauty. What a gift from God. So do you want to love people who are broken and hurting? Oh, the very best way you can love them is to model a godly life before them and to tell them the gospel, to tell them how they can live, how they can be rescued from the brokenness that sin brings into our lives. We look at our own nation and it seems that Things are just coming unraveled. That the nation's falling apart. Terrorist attacks here, police shootings there, disintegration of families, prisons full, economic hardships. We look at our churches, and churches are in a mess, and they're fighting, and there's dissension. Many churches losing a commitment to the gospel, losing a commitment to the word of God. And what are we doing? Well, a lot of the times we're planning our vacations and our weekend getaways. And we're making plans to do this hobby and that hobby. And hey, we're going to do this to entertain ourselves and we're going to go on that trip and it's going to be so great and so much fun. None of those things are bad. But folks, when those things define our lives and our primary focus is on me, we've missed it. We've missed it. See, we don't need to be so serious about building our own kingdoms. We need to be more serious about building God's kingdom. We need to be more serious about the pain and the heartache in other people's lives. We need to be more serious about investing in our lives and things that will help people know Jesus, that will help people be rescued. And so today, I wonder if what God is calling you to do is to take something out of your life. To say, you know what, I'm going to give up this because this takes up so much of my focus. Or I'm going to make a sacrifice here and I'm going to begin to pour into the lives of others. I'm going to begin to live in such a way that that I'm making God and serving him and helping others know Jesus. I'm going to make that a priority in my life. I'm going to quit making everything else that benefits me and my family and us. I'm going to put some of that aside. And I'm going to put my focus on what God would have me focus on. It'll take sacrifice. Wasn't it a sacrifice for Nehemiah to leave a high place in the Persian Empire and go to a broken and messed up city? We'll see that it was in the weeks ahead. It was a great sacrifice. And yet it's just the kind of sacrifice we see modeled by the Lord Jesus himself to leave the the glories of heaven and to come to a broken and messed up place like this to do what? To be nailed to a cross. Folks, the Christian life is a life of giving up ourselves. Not that we can never have fun or enjoy ourselves. Of course we can. We just can't make that the main thing. And today, unfortunately, it's a temptation for all of us. So if you're a believer, I want to ask you to cry out to God and say, God, help me to see 
the brokenness that's around me. God, like Nehemiah, actually asked. He didn't have to ask, but he did ask. God, I'm asking you, help me to see the brokenness that's around me and help me to care. Help me to do what I can in the sphere that you've placed me. God, please help me to get my eyes off of myself and to always asking, how does this benefit me? God, help me to start asking, how can I be a blessing and a strength and a help to others? How can I get the gospel to others? So if you're a believer, will you ask him that? Will you plead with him? That's what I'm praying for my own heart, my own heart that's often hard and stubborn. Praying that he'll break my heart. And if you're here today and you've never, you've never believed in Jesus, I'm pleading with you today to understand that when you stand before God on that day of judgment, he will not give you a high five and say, hey, you did more good things than bad things. I want you to understand that will never happen. He will look at you just as he would look at me without Christ and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. There's only one way to hear him say, come. And it's that the blood of Christ has covered our hearts. So if the blood of Christ has never covered your heart. This morning, you're invited to come, to believe. I'll be up here after the service as well. If you want to visit more, I'd be happy to visit. Join me in prayer.